If you are remaining here, grab a Bible and please open it to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. Last week, we looked at the first half of this chapter. And at the outset, we asked the question, what does a Christian look like? Or more personally, how does your life look different because you're a Christian than it would if you are not a Christian? And as we looked at the first half of 1 Peter 4, the answer that Peter provided for us is this. A Christian thinks like Christ and lives to bring him glory. So if you want to know what does a Christian look like, they look like someone who thinks the same way that Christ thinks. And they act the same way that Christ acts. And they do this because it's Jesus who's given them life. And so if you are in Christ, you are experiencing and enjoying a new life that God has made in you. And that life is partnered together with Christ so that now you think like him and you act like him and more and more you will look like him. Peter gave us just four of the ways that our life would change as we look more and more like Christ. He said that we'll be sober-minded and self-controlled in the way that we live. He said that we'll have a love for one another that is deep and can overcome repeated offenses and hurts against one another. He says that as we look more like Christ, we will show a hospitality to one another and welcome one another in, in a way that reflects the welcome we have with God. Lastly, Peter said, a Christian who is thinking like Christ and now acting like Christ will use the gifts that God has given them, use every resource that God has given them to bring him glory with their life. And so if you've turned to follow Jesus and confessed your sin, then your life will look different from before. The way that you think and act will look markedly more and more like the way that Jesus thinks and acts. So that was last week as we looked at the first half of chapter 4. So if your Bible is open, read along as I read our passage, starting at verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous are scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So the problem is this. If you have the same way of thinking as Jesus does, like Peter commended us to last week, then you'll live like Jesus and you'll be known as his follower. 
And if you're known as his follower, you will then face trials and suffering because of your obedience to him. Peter tells us, don't be surprised, but if you're known as a Christian, it means trouble will come your way. There will be trial because of your obedience to God. There will be suffering that you experience expressly because you are now God's child. So the problem for every Christian becomes that those trials can wear us down and eventually discourage our souls. There's an excitement when you first follow Christ and you experience this new hope that you have of forgiveness from sins, of freedom from the way you lived before and the power of the Spirit to live and walk in a new way. And so you want to tell everybody about this hope that you found. But then eventually we find out that it's not widely popular with everyone or that it's going to cause some trouble with our relationships that we have or that it means we're going to have to adjust how we're living and suddenly following Christ means also taking on some troubles that we just didn't have before. And after years and decades of facing trials and sufferings, all because we're Christian, it can have the effect of discouraging us and wearing us down and asking, is it worth all the trouble that comes along with being a Christ follower to really follow Christ? Now, there are griefs everyone experiences whether they're a Christian or not. The death of a loved one, the loss of a job, physical illnesses, relational breakdowns, the list goes on. But here, Peter is focused particularly on trials and sufferings that come as a direct result of following Jesus Christ. He talks about being insulted for the name of Christ, suffering because you're known as a Christian. The fiery trial that he's talking about is a specific trial we go through because we are living not according to the wisdom of the world, but according to the wisdom of God. So there are times of sorrow that do come simply because we're a disciple of Christ that someone who's not following Christ will never experience. Relationships that are lost because friends don't want to hear you talk about Jesus anymore. Parents who watch their children want nothing to do with God, no matter how many times they've been told the good news of Jesus Christ. Children who faithfully witness to their siblings and parents but never see them respond to the gospel. Reputations that are maligned because someone chose to follow God and his word instead of following what worldly advice would have them do. In some areas of the world, our brothers and sisters face trials even greater than this as threats of physical harm or the reality of giving up their lives is a very real daily presence all because of their choice to follow Christ. Following Jesus gives us new life, but it also brings its share of sorrows as we live faithfully for our Savior. And so Peter speaks to Christians scattered around the world who are worn down and facing discouragement. But he gives them two options of how we can respond to these trials and suffering. And then he gives us an unshakable hope to choose one option over the other. So first, Peter begins by acknowledging this fiery trial. He says, a fiery trial will come upon you. Don't be surprised. 
And when we see this, the language he's using here is reminiscent of what we see in Proverbs. In Proverbs 17.3, the author says, The crucible is for silver and the furnace is for gold, and the Lord tests hearts. A crucible is used to melt down material you want when you need to cast a metal object. And if you want to make something out of metal, you need a good, pure alloy. Otherwise, the mixture won't be quite right, and the metal might be too brittle, and your part will break, or it might be too soft and malleable. But when metal is heated up in a fire, in a crucible, to the melting point, what happens is that the impurities, the dross, separates out so that you can skim them away, leaving you with just the pure alloy you need. So Proverbs says, just like metal is fired up in the furnace so that it can be purified and used for its purpose, so too the heart of a person can be tested by God and refined like metal in the fire. So Peter uses that imagery here in chapter 4. He says, if you follow Jesus, you will face a fire that will test you. The trials you will face for being a Christian are not useless. Rather, they're used by God so that he might refine you. His testing isn't just done to see what kind of a Christian you are. It's not just done for his amusement. Rather, it's done so that you might become stronger and more established in your faith. James says in his epistle, these sorts of trials that test us, refine us, and produce in us steadfastness of faith. Because even after we've repented of our sin and placed our faith in Jesus, there are still many areas of our life where we struggle to truly trust him fully. And so though we are redeemed, though God has justified us and saved us and given us new life, there's still a lot of growing left to do. But God, in his grace, doesn't look at us and say, well, your faith isn't strong enough. So I'll just leave you behind. I'll go find somebody else and see if their faith is stronger. Rather, God goes to every one of his children, whether our faith is weak and feeble or strong and tested, and says, I will continue to refine you and make you stronger. So we have all these areas where we're trusting in God as our Savior. We're trusting in Christ and clinging to him, but there's still some parts of our heart that we're still kind of trusting in ourselves. So God says, I'll test you, I'll refine you, so that we can work those out. Every summer when I was a kid, I went up to camp in the Rocky Mountains for about a week. And several years when I went up to camp, one of the main activities that we would do was rock piling, or rock climbing rather, and rappelling. Now rock climbing is much more self-explanatory. You walk up to a cliff, and then you find a way to get up that cliff face. Rappelling was slightly different. It's just rock climbing backwards. You walk to the top of a cliff, and then you get down to the bottom of the cliff. Now, rock climbing, again, is straightforward because you can see right in front of you where I need to grab, where I need to place my foot, and I know that the top is just above me, so if I keep going up, I'll make it. Rappelling, on the other hand, where we would go was to the top of a cliff, and you really couldn't see down to the bottom because you'd have to get too close to the edge. And every year what they would do is the counselors would take us to the top of the cliff, sit us down, and then bring out a giant duffel bag and start pulling out all sorts of equipment. So there's a harness that you're going to have to strap into, and there's ropes, just what seemed like miles and miles of ropes, and all these sort of metal fixtures, carabiners and clips and all sorts of things, things you recognize, things you didn't. 
And what they would do is go through item by item and explain the object and say, this harness, you're going to strap into it and you can see all the safety features here and here. And it's able to hold someone 10, 20 times more your weight. We've got all this rope and we test it and we use it for one season. And after the season's done, we throw it out because we don't trust it anymore. So this is a brand new rope. That's been tested, and we know it's not worn out yet. And this carabiner, this one carabiner could hold thousands of pounds, and so even if you fell with your full weight, it wouldn't budge an inch. And they would walk through all the safety gear, and eventually you would find yourself strapped into a harness with all sorts of clips clipped onto the harness and then a rope that's tied to someone else, and you're now standing in front of a cliff, and they tell you, all right, turn around and walk backwards off the cliff. Once you turn around... And the cliff is behind you. And the only thing you have left to do is walk backwards. You realize how very little you trust the harness and the rope that you were just shown. You just spent 20 minutes being told all the thousands of pounds and tons of force that this stuff can take. You've seen the counselor hanging off the rope, going first to show you it's all trustworthy. But when that cliff is behind you, you realize I've got a lot more trust in my legs right now to just keep me right where I am. And so I would find myself every year standing at the top of that cliff, knowing that I was connected in, everyone had done their safety checks, I had all the right equipment, but it took everything in me to take one more step backwards because I knew as soon as I take one more step, my weight shifts from my feet to that rope. And I've got to trust that rope's going to hold. Otherwise, there's nothing but a drop left for me. But sure enough, year after year, you take one more step, your weight shifts, and you realize, I'm not standing on my feet anymore. I'm held in by that one rope, and it's holding strong without budging an inch. So every year, I realized that I I trusted that rope after I saw the safety demonstration until the moment when I really had to trust it. And until I was backed over that cliff and I saw that equipment in action, then I realized just how much I could trust it and I didn't need to rely on my own two feet. God's purpose in testing us is similar. In letting us endure trials, he's showing us just how much we can trust him. He's showing us how much we're still relying on our own strength and not relying on him. So the scripture says, these trials come upon you to test you so that you might be strengthened. And your faith is strengthened, not as you discover something new and strong in your heart, but as you discover something new about how God is trustworthy. So Peter tells us, don't be surprised when you're tested like that. As if it's somehow strange and unexpected that a Christian would come up against trials and suffering. If you belong to Christ, then the Spirit is working in your life, and God is refining you and teaching you to trust him more and more so that you might experience more and more of his grace in your life. So the fiery trial, the sufferings that come upon us, they're not obstacles to God working in us. They're the very means by which he is transforming us more into the image of his Son. So instead of shock and surprise, Peter says there's two options that we have for how we can respond to these trials. Two options that are before us when the trials come upon us of how we might respond. Option number one, rejoice. Look at verse 13. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, 
that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. We rejoice because suffering for the sake of following Christ is a means by which God is working in us. And so we rejoice because even though there's pain and hardship in that trial, in the midst of that suffering, it is an evidence by which we can see we belong to God. Because the one who suffers, sharing in Christ's suffering, is one who God calls his child. God works to refine and build up his children. So if he's bringing trials into your life, that means he considers you his child. So if we suffer because of our faith, it's an evidence of our partnership with Christ and our adoption into the family of God. So Peter says if you experience this kind of suffering, following Jesus, count yourself blessed because it shows that the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. It shows that you are his, that he cares for you, and that he wants to grow you and strengthen you. So our first option is rejoice. When I come upon hardship because of my faith, I can have an abiding joy But how do we rejoice in the midst of suffering? How do you take that sort of head knowledge that you belong to Christ and that God's working in your life, but transform it to the heartfelt experience of joy? It's not always easy because the trials that we will come into as we're following Christ can be some of the messiest and most heart-wrenching. Because oftentimes, as you follow Christ, it will bring division between you and some of your closest friends or family members. It means that you might have to give up and sacrifice things that you used to chase after with all your strength. So how in the midst of that hardship or sorrow can we still experience joy? I think there's two things we can do to help us find joy, even in the midst of a suffering and trial. Number one is we can remember the source of our joy. We can rejoice in suffering when we remember that the very source of our joy comes from belonging to Christ. Because even once we're adopted into the family of God, it's easy to forget that our joy is God himself who has given himself to us. And we can still try to enjoy other things, other gifts that God gives us, and think that they're our source of joy and happiness. But none of the gifts that God gives us, apart from himself, are strong enough for us to maintain joy into eternity. So we might take joy in our family or in our possessions. We might take joy in what we've been able to do with our life and the accomplishments we've been able to make. But all of those things are things that will fade away. And so if our joy is rooted in the gifts that God has given us, then when those gifts fade away, so too will our joy. Rather, for the Christian, God himself is our source of eternal joy and unending happiness. Because he has given, him, given himself to us so that we can be with him forever. Now, we can still enjoy all the other gifts that he gives us, but we have to remember that our joy is rooted in the fact that when we speak to God, we can call him Father, and he will call us his daughter or his son. And that fact, for those who are in Christ, will be true from this very moment all the way 
into eternity unending. So Christian, your joy is rooted in being God's child. And because he holds his children fast, that fact will never change. So if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you can remember that your joy is not dependent on your reputation in this world. And so if someone derides you, criticizes you for following Christ, you can still find joy in that trial by knowing it doesn't matter how that other person esteems me because I know who God has made me and how he esteems me as his child. If your faith means that you're overlooked or ignored or marginalized, you can rejoice in knowing that your joy is is not based on how you are standing in this world or the the influence you're able to have in this lifetime. Your joy rests in knowing that you have an audience with the creator of the universe and that he welcomes you in. For Christians who are threatened because they follow Jesus, they can rejoice knowing that their life in this world is not their own, but they belong body and soul to a God who has given them eternal life with him. So our joy is not rooted in our continued health and well-being here. Our joy is not rooted in a long life that we might have here. Our joy is found with God in the fact that we will be with him and enjoy him forever. And so whatever things we have in this world and whatever things we lose in this world, if we remember the source of our joy, those things can't rob us of rejoicing in God. So how do we rejoice in the midst of suffering? First, we remember the very foundation of where our joy comes from, God himself. The second thing we can do is recount God's goodness. Look to the scriptures. Look back on your life and see how he has dealt with you in the past. We can quickly forget all that God has done. We can focus in on just the hard things that have happened to us and begin to doubt that God is good or will continue being good towards us. So dive into his word. Discover afresh how God is steadfast in his love and unwavering toward his people. The testimony of Scripture over and over again is that God's people will be faithless towards him and he will be faithful to them. And then if we look back through our own life, we will see that same pattern played out where even in times where we were faithless towards God, he will remain faithful and loving towards us. How do we rejoice? We remember that God is the source of our joy, and then we recount his goodness. Goodness played out in the pages of Scripture, goodness played out in the lives of other Christians, but even goodness played out in our own life as we've had time to follow him. So Peter says that the trials and sufferings of this world, and because of our faith, don't have to rob us of joy. In fact, trials brought on because of our faith can spur us on to greater joy, confirming that we belong to God and he's actively working in us. So that even if we suffer more on account of our faith, we might have more joy. Wherever we find greater trial because of following Christ, we will experience a greater rejoicing knowing that God indeed is with us and working in us. And so the first option we have when we meet this fiery trial is rejoice. 
The second option is hide. To try and hide the fact that we're Christians. If being known as a follower of Jesus brings about trial or suffering, then maybe we just sort of downplay that we're a Christian, become a lot more subtle with our witness, so subtle that people hardly even notice we're Christians, and we could just kind of fly under the radar and not get all the troubles that comes along with being a follower of Christ. We probably don't consciously think about it in those terms, but functionally that's what happens. If we know that talking about Jesus and sharing the gospel with a friend will lead to a tense conversation or a difficult conversation, then oftentimes we'll consider just shying away from that. And we can try to sound sort of pious and say, well, it's not the right place or the right time, but eventually we find, I always shy away from sharing the gospel with anyone if I think it's going to upset them. If not joining in the office gossip is going to make us stand out, then we decide to join in and dish. If being outspoken about our faith will change the way that people view us or might, think, might make them think less of us, then maybe we become just a little bit less verbal about our beliefs and convictions. I think we would hardly consciously say, I'm going to try to be a less noticeable Christian, but functionally that's oftentimes what we do when we realize if I follow him faithfully in this area of my life, it will lead to trouble. We oftentimes second guess, well, maybe then I can soften the blow a little bit. Maybe I'll just use a lot more of my actions and a lot fewer of my words to try to get the message across that I'm a Christian. But Peter warns us, look at verse 15. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? What Peter tells us is that we will face trials and sufferings whether or not we live faithfully for Christ. Every human being on this planet will come across sufferings and trials because we live in a sinful and broken world. And so even if we attempt to try to lessen our suffering by maybe just not living quite so boldly for Christ so we don't take on that whole batch of trials... It doesn't get us out of suffering altogether, but also it means that what we do endure will be wasted. Suffering is common to all people. But if we say, I'm going I'm to follow Christ, I'm just not going to live for his name, we'll still come into trouble. And we might think that we're being refined by God as we come into different trouble, but instead... Really, we're just suffering the consequences of a sinful and rebellious life. So Peter warns his readers, be known as a Christian. Suffering is in this world. Judgment begins with the house of God, but judgment will come to the entire world. Those who are in God's household might experience judgment, but so too will all of those who are outside of God's family. And so if suffering, 
trial, opposition comes to all, and judgment will come upon all, then at least in your suffering be known as a Christian rather than anything else. Because at least in that suffering, God will work to refine and strengthen you. And notice he uses sort of four increasingly what I would call more socially acceptable wrongs. In verse 15, he says, don't suffer as a murderer, thief, evildoer, or meddler. And he's trying to get this point across of don't, don't be known by any of those other things. Be known as a Christian. And we've got these sort of increasingly socially acceptable ways to be wrong. So the worst is don't be a murderer. Peter tells his readers, don't be known as the kills other people person. And we can all go, check, not me. Then he says, don't be known as the stealing things that aren't yours person. And we might pause a little bit and say, well, generally I don't steal things, but maybe at some points I've taken something that wasn't mine or had a little time stolen at work. But generally, no, I don't steal things. I can kind of check that off. I'm not known as a thief. Then he says, don't be known as an evildoer. Well, that's a broad category. That's just sort of anything that goes against God's will. Don't be known as that. So when we look at the Ten Commandments, we've got things that say don't murder, don't steal, but then also don't covet. That just takes place in your mind and your heart. You don't even have to act on that. And that's still a way of acting evilly. As Peter says, don't be an evildoer. And we've got to pause and ask ourselves, wait, am I lumped in with that? Can I say that in the ways that I think and act in my life, I'm trying to pursue Christ? Then he goes one step further and he says, don't be a meddler. It's the hardest of all the terms he uses here to fully understand. But Peter basically says, don't be known as someone who's trying to get involved in other people's business. It might not outright be sin labeled in the Bible, but Peter is saying that your character should be so above reproach that you're not even known as sort of a busybody, gossipy person. And so he keeps narrowing the funnel down to say, you shouldn't be known by any of these things. Rather, you should be known as a Christian. And it starts out easy to say, yeah, I won't be known as the murder person, won't be known as the stealing person, but now I've got to not be known as the evildoer or just the busybody. What Peter's saying is live so much for the glory of Christ that the primary thing people know you for is your faith. So that when they think of you, you're not just the angry guy or the guy that's always stealing office supplies from work or you're not the person who's going around trying to gossip, talk about everyone else's business. This is about how we're known by others. And he says, don't be known by anything that would be other than God. So if you're known as a Christ follower, and if that's the reason you're insulted, and that's the reason you come into trial and suffering, count yourself blessed. If you live so fully for Christ that the first thing people think of you is that that person's a Christian. They just won't stop talking about Jesus and all the things that he's done in his life. If you face suffering because of that, rejoice because God is with you and working in you. Jesus tells a parable 
of a sower who goes out to spread seed on the ground that he might bring up a crop. And there's several different categories of ground that the seed falls on. One is rocky soil. Jesus says that the crop sprouts up, but then when it realizes that it's going to run into trouble for following in the kingdom of God, it quickly withers and dies away. There's another kind of seed that falls on good soil, and it's able to grow down deep and be rooted in Christ so that it can grow and flourish. If you're truly following Christ, then you can live boldly for his name, and when it brings trials and sufferings, it won't have the effect of withering away your faith, but it will have the effect of strengthening your faith. And if you find yourself questioning whether or not I really want to be known as a Christian anymore because of all the trouble it's bringing my way, then it's a good diagnostic to ask, am I truly rooted down in Christ? I call myself a Christian, but if I don't find any joy in following him because of all the trouble that comes along with it, I have to ask, am I truly following Christ? Because for any of God's children, as we suffer, because of our faith, God will give us joy as he works in us. So Peter tells us there's a fiery trial, and we have two options to respond. The first is to rejoice, and the second is to try and hide and shy away. So why should we choose to rejoice? For this, Peter gives us an unshakable hope for why we can and should rejoice in the midst of suffering and trial. At the end of our passage, he instructs us to entrust our soul to our faithful creator. That means to continue to place our trust and our hope in God alone, knowing that he is faithful. Faithful to what? Faithful to hold us secure, faithful to continue to work in us, faithful to refine us, and faithful to one day make us perfect and complete in him so that we might be with him forever. So Peter reminds us the God that we worship is a creator who is faithful. And so as we come across trial and suffering, we can rest assured that it's not disrupting his plans for our lives or this world, but rather he's able to work in the hard moments of our life, in the trials we come up against, to strengthen us. But then Peter gives us one more reason why we can choose to rejoice. In verse 13, he says, Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So that's two times. One, we rejoice right now, but then also we rejoice and are glad in the future. Peter's telling us about two times in our life. Right now, we can enjoy God and rejoice in him but it means in the future we will rejoice and be glad. That means we'll rejoice with joy overflowing because we will see Christ's glory. But not only that, we're partnered with him. We're sharing in his sufferings now, which means we share in his life and his death and his resurrection, which means that when Christ's glory is revealed, we will continue to share with him in that glory into eternity. 
And so we rejoice now, knowing we have a great unshakable hope that Christ's glory will be revealed. And if we have shared in his sufferings, we will surely share with him in his glory for all eternity. John Calvin reflects on this verse and says, Here then is the whole consolation of the godly, that they are associates with Christ, that hereafter they may be partakers of his glory. For those who live with Christ, who endure trial and suffering for his name, hereafter and into eternity, we can be partakers of his glory, enjoying him forever and ever. Would you pray with me? Father, we ask first that you would keep us faithful to you even in the midst of trial and suffering. We thank you for the work that you do in us through these things to refine us and strengthen us. We ask that you would hold us up, that we might rejoice now and rejoice and be glad into eternity. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.